Jesus, we just want to say, yes, Lord, our one desire is that we may know you, that we may see you clearly this morning. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to see you and open our ears that we may hear your voice this morning. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. All right. Well, before I get started, I just want to say with the 4th of July coming up, I want to say how thankful I am for this great nation that we live in, where we can gather together and worship our God. May we never take that for granted. Amen. All right. If you could stand with me, I'm going to quickly read the passage that I have been given this morning. And then we'll proceed. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. You may be seated. So, like I said, the passage I've been given to talk about this morning is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And before I dive into this particular passage, I want to create a picture, a backdrop for you to understand what Paul as an apostle was speaking into. Reading several different commentaries on Ephesians, I've come to appreciate the struggles these believers were living in, even as they were seeking to live out their faith, most of them being relatively new Christians. Mick Murray mentioned in the beginning of the series that Ephesus was a sizable commercial port city in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. It was a large population center on a major trade route, also known as the Gateway to Asia, It was truly a metropolis, abundant in materialism and wealth. Not only so, but Ephesus was a center of pagan worship and hosted the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The culture of Ephesus was known for sexual perversion and idolatry. Can we relate? Sounds like what we're living in right now, doesn't it? The philosopher Heraclitus said, no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. 
Paul's first contact with this city was when he left Corinth to travel to Jerusalem in 53 AD. And on his journey back from Jerusalem, Paul travels to Ephesus and establishes there his longest ministry in one location. Acts 19 describes how Paul initially spent three months in the synagogue in Ephesus, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Until being maligned by the Jews of the synagogue, he moved on to have discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus with both Jews and Gentiles for the next two years. It is during this time that God did extraordinary miracles so that handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul were taken to the sick and illnesses were cured and evil spirits left. Remember the story of the seven sons of Sceva who wanted the power to exercise a demon from a man in the town? Well, that happened in Ephesus. Then a riot later occurred when the idol industry was affected because of Paul's preaching, and so Paul had to leave. It is into this backdrop of immorality, materialism, idolatry, and perversion that Paul, while imprisoned in Rome, writes to the Ephesians. It is not a letter sent to one person like Timothy or Titus, nor does it seek to correct errors in the church as his letter to some of the other churches like Corinth or Galatia. One commentator writes, this book is Paul's final instructions that he wanted to pass on to what it takes to become a glorious church in Christ, God's plan for his church. In this first chapter, Paul pens a beautiful prayer that honestly turns out to be instructions for the Christian believer on what they needed to live in a society that is so contrary to their faith, and not only to live in it, but thrive. And we will see that also in this section of Ephesians, Paul expounds on the divinity of Christ and his power and authority over all creation. So let's begin. But before we begin to dissect Paul's prayer, I want to point out that it's significant to me how Paul models the importance of praying for believers, for those who are following Jesus. The church of Ephesus was a part of Paul's burden. He displays a sense of spiritual responsibility over this group of people, not because they're struggling and need prayer, but because God had bonded Paul to them. In verse 16, it says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This begs the question, who has God put in your circle of relationships that you should be praying for? Just as Paul is burdened to pray for the believers in Ephesus, we too should be ready and diligent to pray, not just for ourselves, our personal families, friends, or even unbelievers, but for this body to which you have been called to. If you call Antioch home, God has put you into a spiritual family. And part of the responsibility of being in this family is to pray for each other, to carry one another and encourage one another. These are such strange times. So many, even in the body of Christ, have gone astray. 
and have embraced the culture rather than staying true to biblical truths. Confusion abounds, and there is a bending to worldly ways as even churches have lost our moral compass. And some churches are in many ways unrecognizable when looking at the mirror of the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. So like Paul, we need to intercede for the church. The Bible says in Ephesians 6:18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert and always keep on praying for who? For all the Lord's people. Here is a direct admonition for us, a command to pray for all the Lord's people. Think of it. What if we prayed, as Paul did, for our faith community, our spiritual family, for Antioch Community Church to become all that God wants us to be? If one believer can be a light, one church full of godly believers can be a literal inferno. Imagine the power of this house if all its members were growing in our knowledge of God. What kind of love would we carry? What kind of joy would overflow? And what kind of power would we walk in? How would we as individuals and as a church change the world rather than be changed by it? We can walk in the kind of authority and influence that changes societies. We can impact the city of Waco like Paul impacted the city of Ephesus so that its main idol industry was affected. If you call Antioch your home church, I encourage you, pray for our leaders. Pray for each other. Getting back to our passage, we know that Paul prays for the Ephesians, but what does he pray? Let's look at it together. I want to quickly hit each section of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. First of all, in verse 17, he says, he prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. As Christians, we should be growing in our knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we are not advancing in knowing God, chances are we are backsliding. We cannot stay neutral in the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Revelation, I wish you were hot or cold. Why does he say that? If you're moving towards God, that's awesome. And that's exactly what you should be doing. But on the flip side, if you're moving away from God, that's not so great. That's bad. But at least you can repent and change direction so that you're moving towards God again. But if you don't move at all, if you're lukewarm, as the Bible says, you get stuck and slowly you become apathetic. In many ways, apathy is worse than retreat because you deceive yourself into thinking you're doing okay when you're not. You don't see yourself rightly. And that means you cannot change because you don't see a need to change. That makes you a target for the enemy. The Lord spoke to me as I was preparing. It's easier to hit a still target than one that is moving. 
Revelation 3, 14 through 17 says, To the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize. Let me say that again. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Naked. I just said naked like a Texan. Sorry. (laughs) What you do not realize is what ends up hurting you. So getting back to Paul's prayer for us to know God better, we know the practical steps of being in the word and prayer that allows us to grow in our knowledge of God. But that's only part of the equation. What Paul is talking about here in this verse is that our human attempts are not enough. It can only take us so far. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is what we need to know him better. Luke 11 says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I encourage you, ask the Lord, God, give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I may know you better. And give us at Antioch the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may all know you better. Okay, Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians is for their knowledge of God to increase. He then prays that the eyes of their hearts be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What is Paul talking about? There are so many things I can say about this topic, but I don't have the time. So I will summarize my thoughts in this way. John Piper describes hope as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. In some ways, I feel like hope has been underrated, especially in Christian circles. We talk a lot about love and a lot about faith, but what about hope? As human beings, we were made to live in hope, and without it, we cannot function. If you think about the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 to 13, it says, Now these three remain, faith hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We often hear sermons on the importance of love, but here Paul says that after all is said and done, three things remain. He could have said love remains, but he didn't say that. He said three things. And though love is the greatest, what about faith? We know how important faith is to come into the kingdom of God. So now what about hope? The Bible actually speaks a lot about this topic. And even though we don't have time to go over all the scriptures today, hope is so important. It's kind of like air. You don't think a lot about air or your need for it until you're underwater and you can't breathe. Then you realize how important air is to you. Likewise, You can see how important hope really is if you think about someone who doesn't have it. When a person struggles long-term with hopelessness, what happens? Eventually, if they're hopeless long enough, they end up taking their lives. 
because no one can live long without hope. So we can agree, we need hope. The difference between those who do not know the Lord and those who do is the object of their hope. The problem is, people in this world hope for joy and fulfillment in circumstances or in things. And when they are disappointed, or when that thing they attach their hope to doesn't work out, then they become hopeless and life is no longer worth living. They don't have anything solid to attach their hope to. I see it kind of like this. That person is you and me. And that rope represents hope. When your hope is attached to something that is temporary or can change, or if your hope is in a person who can fail, it's like having your rope attached to a flimsy branch. Imagine if that person rock climbing attached his rope to that branch. How well will it hold him up? It's not very strong. It's not reliable. And when that branch breaks, he will fall. For Christians, our hope should be rooted and anchored in the person of Christ. Christ will never disappear, change, or be destroyed. He is solid, eternal, proven. If that rock was on top of that mountain and the rope was around it, there is no chance that person would fall. Romans 15, 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. When God and his purposes become our hope, we are able to stand. So then why are so many Christians depressed and hopeless? Why is Paul praying for even these Ephesians to know the hope to which he has called them? It's because we forget where our hope should be anchored in. We switch from the rock to the branch. Paul knows that while we're living in this world, it's easy to lose sight of God as the goal of our hope and to fall back on hoping in things or circumstances or people. It's easy to become distracted or misaligned. In addition, the enemy is constantly attacking us, trying to break us through hopelessness. Because if we're without hope, we give up. There is no more willingness or desire to fight. And our focus draws inward into our lives. And we lose the capacity to care about others. Without hope, we can lose joy and peace in believing. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who hope in where? In the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you are hopeless today, then somewhere you've lost sight of God as your hope. Somewhere or somehow you have started to believe a lie about God or about his character or his truth. And because of those lies, you have attached your hope to temporary things or circumstances rather than on him. And we need to place our hope back on the solid rock of Christ Jesus. Psalm 18:2. the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Moving on to verse 18b in Ephesians, 
What is this riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people that Paul is talking about? Well, when I first read this, I was thinking about this in terms of what is the glorious inheritance we have in God. And maybe that is a way you could take that. But as I was preparing for this sermon, I saw several commentaries that believe this passage is actually speaking about God's inheritance. Because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross, Jesus presents his holy people, us, to God as his inheritance. F.F. Bruce writes, Because you're in Christ, God sees you as you will be in glory and is eager to receive you and your fellow believers as his glorious inheritance. How amazing. It's astonishing to realize that God values you and me so much that he would actually consider us his inheritance. When my mom suddenly passed away last year, she left some jewelry that she used to wear. It's not monetarily worth much, but it means everything to me. When I wear them, I think of her and who she was and what she meant to our family. Those pieces are not expensive, but they are of great value to me. And I have heard it said, an object has value not because of the object, but because of what someone is willing to pay for it. You have value today, not because of anything you did, but because of him who esteemed you worthy of the highest price. God was willing to pay with the life of his beloved son in exchange for yours. If you have ever felt worthless or dirty or shame-filled, realizing how God himself sees you should set you free from every degrading thought. He sees your worth not because of anything you've done, but because of Christ's work on the cross. You have become the inheritance that he treasures. Amen. Moving on, verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. This phrase has been something that has absolutely captured my thoughts and imagination of late. I've been reading and meditating on the power of God and trying to comprehend the bigness of this thought or idea. And you know what I've come to realize? I know absolutely nothing. I have reduced God to what I can see or hear or comprehend with my finite mind. When he is so much bigger, wiser, majestic, and supreme. It's like standing in awe of a hill when comparing it to Mount Everest. When we realize who we actually serve. When we glimpse his incomparably great power, everything else falls into place. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You want to have a greater revelation of God? Take a look around you at all that God has made. The first time that I was impacted by the power of God, 
that was evident in the world around me and not just my personal experience was when I took anatomy and physiology as I was preparing to become a nurse. I've never enjoyed science in high school. I did well only because I forced myself to study. But it definitely was not a love for me. And I instead chose English as my major at Baylor, born out of my love for reading. Well, when I decided to become a nurse later on in life, I knew I would have to take some science classes. And I was not looking forward to it until I took anatomy and physiology. I told Jeff... I feel like worshiping God when I get done reading the chapters in my book. How can anyone not conclude there must be an infinitely wise God when you look at the complex human body and how everything works together? That's when being deeply impacted by the power and wisdom of God, I realized to a greater level that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. I've recently learned that someone else has this same revelation. I've been reading a book called Miracles by Eric Metaxas, and in it he observes, the more science discovers about the world we cannot see with the naked eye, the more we realize how stunningly complex the simple cell is that make up the human body, so complex and designed that it cannot be mere chance. And many scientists in examining the staggering order of the universe have concluded the same. In this book, he discusses the idea that physicists have come to describe as the fine-tuned universe to categorize the overwhelming appearance of our cosmos being purposely fine-tuned by someone in order to support life. I realize I'm spending a lot of time on this. I ask that you put up with my reveling because all these scientific facts serve to exponentiate the crazy awesomeness of God and his incredible power and might. Here are just a few examples of what I've learned recently. One variable is the size of our planet. Listen to this. Since the mass of a planet determines how much gravity it has, If the earth was slightly larger, it would have more gravity resulting in methane and ammonia remaining close to the surface and not dissipate into the atmosphere. These gases would stay down where we would inhale them. And since they're toxic, we cannot breathe them, we would die. On the other hand, if the earth were a tiny bit smaller, There would be less gravity, and water vapor, which has the molecular weight of 18, would not stay down on the planet's surface, but would dissipate. And without water, we couldn't exist. Even the rotation of our planet is precisely what it needs to be for us to be alive. You didn't know that you're getting a science uh, (laughs) teaching out of this. Our planet rotates once every 24 hours. If it rotated ever so slightly slower, the temperature swings between night and day would be inescapably deadly. Let's talk about the significance of our moon and its size. The moon's size and thus its gravity gives our ocean their ebbing and flowing tides. If the moon were slightly larger, It would cause our tides to be more extreme, more like a hundred foot tides. 
there would be no coastal cities or towns. Or if the moon was slightly smaller, the tides would be insufficient to cleanse coastal seawater and replenish its nutrients. How is it that all these things are exactly the size and distance it must be for us to be alive? What this means is that the odds of any planet being able to support life are 1 in 10 to the 50th power. Visually, it looks like this. And yet, here we are. On planet Earth, which meets all these odds and supports life. By the year 2001, the number of fine-tuned characteristics necessary for life was 150. 150 crazy scientific facts that came to light about the universe recently that can only be based on the idea of a divine and intelligent creator God. Even the most prominent atheist of the 20th century, Anthony Flew, concluded later on in his life that the extraordinary complex genetic code in the DNA could not be accounted for naturalistically, that a God must have designed the universe with all the incredible complexities and conditions that are an absolute necessity for life to exist. The existence of life on earth is astonishing incomprehensible, miraculous. It is a statistical and scientific virtual impossibility. And yet, here we are. What does this mean? It points to an incredibly majestic and undeniably wise God who spoke a very extravagant world into being out of love for mankind, who is also powerful beyond our finite understanding. I want you to consider the power of God.
Our God is great. And it doesn't stop there. This indescribable God had a plan. His plan was to send his son Jesus into the world he created, but was broken by our sin. Jesus, of whom the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This Jesus came to this earth and lived on it, limiting himself to being fully human, to reveal to us who the Father is, and then to ultimately die for you and for me so that by his death he could pay the wages of sin, which is death, Romans 6.23. That justice and mercy could be met at the cross. And now we're offered this gift, this chance to become his children. And getting back to our fat passage in Ephesians 1.19b through 20 says... That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Think about it. This God who created the massive universe with his power exerted that same power and raised his son from the dead. Not only did God raise Christ from the dead, verse 20 through 22 says, he seated Christ far above Sorry, I'm getting excited here. <laughs> Far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not only now, but forever. Christ is seated far above everything. Not just slightly, not just a little bit, but far above. We cannot even comprehend what that means. If you think about what I just shared at the power of God and how he created the human body and the entire universe with his word, and then to think that Christ is seated above all that, wow. The human language is severely limited. Cannot rightly describe the author, authority, and power, and majesty of God and of his Christ. And that is why in Revelation... The elders and angels constantly fall down crying, holy, holy, holy. They have no other words. But that's not the end, folks. Verse 22 through 23 says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What does this mean for us as believers? It means we are not left to fend for ourselves. We are not the cowering, depressed, and sad Eeyore that says, I hope I make it. We must remember that this Christ who is above all is now the head, the leader of his church, of us. And we must let him lead us. What this means is that we can stop just surviving and believe for more, believe for victory, believe for change. You see, this is the Christ that Paul saw and had a revelation of in his Ephesians passage. 
He knew that this Christ who is seated above all rule and authority, power and dominion is the captain of the team he was on. That is why Paul, this one man, was able to create such a stir and change that he upended the idol industry in one of the most reprobate societies and was such a bother that he caused a riot and they had to kick him out. Paul knew whose team he was on. He was on the winning team. I used to tell my kids when they were little, you serve the God who is on the winning team. And that's the revelation we need as a church in our day. The world is darker. We are not oblivious to the truth. The perversion is real and our society is being given over to depravity. But God, as Susan Peters always likes to say, but our God, he is greater still. And we are not subject to this world and its rule because of the head of this church is Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer, that we, the people of God, would have this glorious revelation. Okay, let's wrap this up. I could go on, but I wanna do two things. First, let's go over some practicals you can incorporate into your life from this message. Number one, if you call Antioch home, begin to pray for your church to be all that God wants us to be. Let's not be like the world in complaining and maligning the church. If you have a specific concern, go to the leaders and humbly talk about it. But start praying for the church that God has called you to be a part of. Number two, begin to ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. Do your part of reading the word and being in prayer and let him do his part of bringing fire onto your sacrifice. Number three, choose to attach your hope to the person of Christ who is our rock. Reject hopelessness. Fill your mind and heart with what will bring you faith and hope. Number four, find value in how God sees you today. The fact that he gave his son in exchange for yours. Those are the practicals. Second, my next prayer for you this morning is that we would see him as he is. Look around you. See the power of God on display and stand in awe of him. Ask God, God, show me, open my eyes that I may see you as you really are. Seated above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Revelations 1, 16 through 18. I'm going to end with this. Hang in there. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword of judgment. And his face, reflecting his majesty and the Shekinah glory, was like the sun shining in all its power. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the absolute deity, the son of God and the ever living one living in, in and beyond all time and space. I died, but see, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of absolute control and victory over death and of Hades. Amen.
Stand up and let's worship God together. Thank you.